Well, if you have a Bible, if you could open to Psalm 45, jumping uh, into the Old Testament. And I don't mind saying that I'm particularly excited about uh, this passage, not for perhaps the reason you might think, uh, and certainly not because it is uh, Christmas Sunday. No, I'm excited because of the subject matter itself. It's about gladness, joy, jubilation. And, and I don't mind saying to you, I have probably said this uh, to you before, perhaps not from the pulpit, but individually, um, I uh, really get a lot out of uh, ministry simply by being cheerful. Uh, a lot of ministry is made uh, far easier by just being cheerful. A happy pastor is significant. And this is a passage that reminds us that if we are in Christ Jesus, we are actually to be a people full of gladness. Part of my happiness is expressed through uh, my love for children, but uh, if you uh, scan the landscape of great ministers, you find many ministers who uh, had an abiding heart for little theologians, Francis Schaeffer and John Stott and J.I. Packer and Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones and Charles Simeon, notable ministers who love little theologians. Gladness in ministry is so important. Little theologians, uh, Merry Christmas to you. Uh, Thank you for uh, being here. If you uh, could uh, work uh, for a piece of uh, artwork, it will be a picture of a wedding. Because Psalm 45 is actually a wedding. This subject matter is very important to me. Joy and cheer in ministry. It does seem as though this has become rare as of late. And I think I'm old enough to be able to say that in the PCA, among Presbyterian and Reformed ministers, uh, joy in ministry seems to be uh, decreasing, not increasing. I don't know why that is. The little theologians, if you could work on a picture of a wedding, and, and, and by the way, can I just say this? You little theologians, did you know that for the past four years, I have showed up to this place on a Sunday with two or three or four cars in my pocket? Did you know that? Every Sunday. You ought to say hi to your minister. It's very cheerful. <laughs> Psalm 45 is our passage this morning. But before we read, let's pray together. Our Father, thank you so very much for finding merriment in your children. Our Father, would you fill us with merriment at having been saved by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 45, just a a few verses, 6 through 9. God's word says this, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. This is the word of our Lord. 
I don't know if you uh, know the name Brian Eno. He's a, a British musician, but what he's really known for is having produced a lot of famous bands, uh, probably many of which, unless you're my age, you don't care very much for at all, like the Talking Heads or Devo or David Bowie. But uh, Brian Eno has produced uh, albums for you 2 and for Coldplay. But I want you to listen to uh, what Brian Eno says uh, about uh, finding joy in this life. He says, I see nothing wrong with escapism. Why shouldn't we escape? We're all perfectly happy to accept the idea of going on holiday. Nobody calls that escapism. I think what's interesting about the idea of using art to create other realities, more desirable realities, is that these can give you a mental place from which to pull your own reality. What's he saying there? I make music because life is unhappy. For just a moment... You're going to leave your unhappy life and you're going to enter the music that I've created and that reality is going to be the better reality of the life that you actually have to live. So Brian Eno selling us gladness in about three-minute segments. Maybe we could have gladness longer than that. A gladness that seems to be attached not to uh, some kind of music that is uh, coming out of a speaker, but maybe attached to our very soul and always with us. Maybe we don't have to escape from anything to be glad. This psalm, uh, you'll see at the very beginning of Psalm 45, if you have a Bible open, you'll see that this is a psalm that's written by the sons of Korah. There's uh, 12 psalms like this in the Bible. And one of the things that stands out uh, in these psalms, we get a nice string of them here, uh, Psalm 42 through 49, they're all uh, songs, uh, psalms by the sons of Korah. But if you take all these uh, psalms together, uh, one of the things you find out about these sons of Korah is that they're brutally honest. They, they talk to us about our human emotions that is just honest. The sons of Korah in their psalms, they'll say that sometimes we're full of praise regarding God's plans for us, but sometimes uh, our hearts are actually critical of God's plans. Uh, We cry out to God, and God what? He doesn't seem to listen to us. Uh, In the songs of the sons of Korah, we read that our soul is sometimes uh, a dark spot. God seems to just ignore us. You forgive me of my sins, we can say to God, but it still feels like your indignation is pointed right at me. These psalms that are a part of the work of the sons of Korah tell us that God certainly listens to us. We know that, but sometimes, sometimes it feels like God waits an awful long time to care for us. And during those seasons, my soul is downcast. Again, the uh, Psalms of the sons of Korah tell us that while the armies uh, of the enemies have surrounded us, uh, we know that God will rescue us, but sometimes it feels like he's rejected us and we're just going to be slaughtered by those enemies. I shouldn't fear in times of trouble, but I do. These psalms are filled with some pretty honest stuff. 
the sons of Korah, they're musicians, but they're musicians of a different ilk than Brian Eno. And these are musicians that read our hearts, know uh, where our heart is, know that our hearts vacillate, but then tell us over and over again that the gladness of Jesus ought to be your own gladness in any and every circumstance. And that's what I think this passage is telling us. The gladness of Jesus is our gladness as Christians. Let's uh, walk through this as quickly as I can. I know uh, that there are a few here who want to rush home and open presents. I don't know why, but there you have it. This psalm is a love song. I don't know what kind of love songs you normally hear on the radio, but love songs that I hear on the radio are generally about uh, passion and physical intimacy and uh, living the high life, bathtubs full of Dom Perignon, that kind of love story. And Psalm 45 is not that kind of love story. It's a love song that's about a wedding. I mean, there's a groom at the very beginning. Uh, The groom is a king, and he's dressed for the occasion. I mean, really what you'd expect. And there's a bride, and uh, she is a a daughter of another family, but she's uh, beautiful to the king. She's desired uh, by the king. And there are these uh, wonderful promises about this uh, great couple. This couple is going to be the kind of couple that will be respected by the most important people in the entire world. It's about a wedding. And it doesn't seem to be uh, wedding guests. This is part of the surprise I want to talk about later. But uh, the groom uh, the groom seems to have these noble ladies of honor, uh, daughters of kings that are gathered uh, around him. Uh, the bride, she has uh, all of her uh, bridemaids. Um, and then there are uh, musicians, you see in verse 8, musicians. Uh, but none of these, the, the, uh, the party of the king and the party of the uh, bride and the musicians, none of these are members of the audience. They're really uh, participants. They're uh, a part of this great uh, wedding. We need, to, we need to ask later if there is an audience, and you might be surprised. I chose this passage because of that expression, oil of gladness. You see a verse, a verse and a half after the oil of gladness, uh, the king is glad. This phrase is actually unusual. It ought to sound unusual. It sounds unusual to me, but it's unusual in the Hebrew Bible. Oil of gladness. You see, oil had uh, several purposes in the ancient world. I mean, oil could be used uh, medicinally. If there's an injury of some sort, uh, oil might be used. Uh, oil is certainly used to mark significant individuals. Or the individual who's marked with oil is special for some reason, uh, a king or a, or a prophet or a priest. But the kind of oil that's used here, the purpose of this oil, we're told specifically, it's almost oil used, well... For common purposes, it's oil of gladness. It's oil that's used as a cosmetic. That's this oil. And I think that we ought to reflect on this just a little. These sons of Korah, the authors of this psalm, uh, they use vivid terminology. They actually are inviting us into this wedding scene that we might sense the grandeur. And so we're told that there is a, a fragrance that emanates from the king and his many robes. And we're given details of those fragrances, myrrh, uh, aloes, cassia. 
And the instruments uh, in verse 8, we're to actually hear accompanying music with this wedding. Uh, And the musicians themselves, they actually make the king's heart glad. But this uh, oil visually makes the king stand out. And he stands out because he's glad. It's not enough that he would be glad in his own heart. That's what we see in verse 8. The psalmist, they want us to see that this king is visibly glad. There's this uh, house uh, right where uh, Standifer Gap turns to Gun Barrel. I'm on this road a lot. And there's a house that just always has stuff in the yard. I don't know why. I mean, sometimes it's a car for sale, but sometimes it's furniture. I I think maybe they run an eBay business or something. But a few days ago, there was a mirror leaning against the fence in his yard. And as I'm going around this uh, corner, um, I can't take my eyes off the mirror. The mirror makes these weird reflections. I'm I'm surprised there hasn't been a car accident right there where Stanford Gap turns into Gun Barrel. I couldn't take my eyes off it. I'm like uh, some kind of woodland creature fascinated with shiny objects. And uh, really, I do like shiny objects. I mean, everyone knows I like cars. Couldn't take my eyes off of it because I'm driving around a corner. The, the reflection changes in it. Who knows what I might see? I didn't drive off the road. But this king shows up with this glistening beard and you're to see that beard and the reflection off of the sun and to know that the king is not just glad in his heart, you can see the gladness. Why shouldn't he be glad? This king is King Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 cites verses 6 and 7. How do you understand the Old Testament? Go to the New Testament. The New Testament tells us that this king is nothing other than Jesus himself. He is our king and he is our savior. And he's glad. It's the season of the incarnation. I'm forming an image of King Jesus in your heart, but I'm not done yet because the sons of Korah aren't done yet. But the king is glad and you can see it. But not only is the king glad, you think there is a real audience to this wedding? Who is in the audience? Who are the ones who are off the chancel and sitting and beholding what's happening? It could be that it's just the reader of Psalm 45. That's the audience. But to be sure, the audience of this wedding is none other than God himself. God the Father is the audience of this wedding. Participating for sure planned it for sure, but he's beholding, he's taking all of this in. Now, we're in dangerous territory here when we say that God is glad. I mean, uh, we confess that uh, God is a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, without parts, without passions. So how can he have emotions? I don't know. I'm not paid to answer that question. But the sons of Korah tell us that God He's glad. And we're invited in Psalm 45 to contemplate this. He is the audience member who has actually put that oil of gladness on the groom. He's dressed this groom. 
Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. And one commentator uh, says it this way, and I have to defer to this commentator because, boy, this is, this is a bold thing to affirm, but he sees it in the passage. I trust that he sees it in the passage. I want to see it in the passage, but take this in. He says, God has poured forth upon him, Jesus, more especially on his nuptial day, a superabundant joy such as he has bestowed upon no other king upon the face of the earth. God finds joy in this king more than any other king. God is glad. You know, there's actually a lot of passages that we can uh, derive this truth as uh, theologically thorny as it might be to say that God uh, is uh, happy or glad or joyful. But there are passages like this all over the Bible. Uh, Blessed is the Lord your God who has delighted in you. This is addressed to Christians. He delights in steadfast love. Uh, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with, get this, loud singing. Zephaniah 3.17. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Isaiah 62, I will rejoice in doing them good. Jeremiah 32, there's passages like this all over the Bible. God's glad about this particular wedding. We need to notice that. Because the incarnation, it's not just a birth. The incarnation is an eruption of God's gladness. I've told you before that I uh, spent some time as a little boy in Iceland. And in the 70s, you could go to these geothermal fields and you could wander aimlessly, no ropes. And you would just be walking on paths surrounded by bubbling mud. And every now and again, uh, you have no way of expecting it. Every now and again, uh, the bubble would grow more intense. And then, boom, it would go right up into the sky shooting hot water. You could be right there if the timing is right. And that burst of hot water is the burst of God. God's delight. He's glad. That's the incarnation. How do I know he's glad? He sent King Jesus to save. Jesus is glad, and God is glad. And we say Merry Christmas all the time. Would you be merry? Merry Christmas. No one's more glad than God. No one's more glad than Jesus. That's the quintessential merriment. Not your Christmas. God and Jesus are the merry ones. Are you glad? Those of you who profess faith in Jesus Christ, are you glad? Because you want to know where you are in this story? And wouldn't it be convenient to say, as a Christian, I'm a part of the audience of this, and I get to behold this wonderful wedding, front row seats. That's not where you are, Christian. 
You're on the chancel. You're the bride. You're the one the king desires. You're the one graciously provided attendance. You're the one with many colored robes. You're the one who is led to the king. You're the one bowing to your husband. You're the one filled with joy and gladness. You're the one the richest people in the world will come to see. This is you. And this is me. You see, the gospel tells us that everything about our life is swept up into someone else's life. My past, my story, it's taken up right into God's story. That's very different than finding a little bit of happiness and gladness in three minutes of music produced by Brian Eno. You're swept up into someone else's story. Merry Christmas, huh? Let me finish with this. Uh, Gresham Machen is a theologian that uh, us Presbyterians uh, really uh, love. And in the middle of December, 1936, he gave a radio address. He died on January 1st. He's going to die in two weeks. And he delivers this radio address in which he says, there's no blessing that we have in this world or the next for which we should not give thanks. Isn't that a great quote? He's a smart theologian. There's no blessing that we have in this world or the next for which we should not give thanks. Two weeks later, he died. I'm going to do something that is going to offend some of you. I'm going to improve the quote of J. Gresham Machen. Talk about dangerous business. It's Christmas morning. I'm glad that you're here. For those of you who profess faith in Jesus Christ, there is no blessing that we have in this world or the next world for which we should not give thanks, but gladness. No blessing in this world, no blessing in the world to come for which we should not give gladness. So, he's Mary. Are you Mary? Merry Christmas indeed. Let's pray together. Well, Father, here we are, Christmas morning, commemorating both the resurrection and the merriment of the incarnation. Would you and your grace fill us with more and more gladness? In Jesus' name, amen.